1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his innovative and conceptually ingenious new book, A New Vision for Islamic Pasts and Futures, Shahzad Bashir invites his readers to rethink and reimagine Islam and time as unbounded, non linear, and abundantly capacious beyond the confines of text, theology, and normative confessional projects limited to Muslims. Bashir presents his argument through a beautifully presented and lyrically written digital book that traverses an extraordinary variety of pre-modern and modern texts, places, figures, material objects, and conceptual nodes. While browsing through and reading this book, the reader will travel through multiple places, genres of text, and theoretical arguments as a multiplicity of time in Islamic thought, practice, and geographies is performed and unfolds. Theoretically invasive and ambitious, aesthetically and visually delightful, and eminently accessible, a new vision for Islamic pasts is bound to spark important and productive debates in Islamic studies and beyond. Here now is my conversation with Professor Shahzad Bashir. Uh, uh, Thank you so much, Shahzad, for your time uh, to join us at the New Books Network uh, to discuss this really marvelous and, uh, if no other word comes to mind, an extremely innovative and ingenious new book, uh, uh, A New Vision for Islamic Pasts and uh, Futures. Uh, Shahzad, before we get into the book, we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies. I think this is your first time on this podcast, if I'm not mistaken. So if I could ask you a two-part question. The first one, if you could share with our listeners a bit uh, how you became a scholar of Islam a uh, sort of brief biographical uh, uh, mention of your journey. And then secondly, how did you uh, get to writing this particular book?
0: Thank you very much, Yeradee. It's it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Um, So I became a scholar of Islam, essentially, um, accidentally. I was born in Pakistan, and I went to high school there. Then I came to the U.S. as an undergraduate student. Um, I was meant to study physics and things like that. Uh, But I got uh, entranced by topics in the humanities and the interpretive social sciences uh, at Amherst College. Um, And so gradually over the course of four years, um, I dabbled in a number of different areas from political theory to literature to history. And um, in a way, the turn towards the study of Islam in particular came from the impulse to try to understand the place where I was actually coming from, uh, namely Pakistan, and growing up in Pakistan in the 1980s, the question of Islam was front and center because of the political situation and just the cultural atmosphere. Uh, so that eventually led to applying to graduate school right after I finished with the undergraduate. Run. And then it kind of took on a life of its own in the profession. Uh, with respect to writing this book, um, it Partly came from a number of previous projects that I had done. I had been interested in the first couple of books that I wrote in messianic movements. Um, and there, the question of apocalypse and the end of time, etc., looms large. Um, so that was kind of um, something I started noticing about time already. And then I started working on corporeality, reality and I wrote a book about bodies. And, and there, too, the question of the human body as a container of time between birth and death, but also... Placing a human life within larger context of uh, the history, and became really interesting, and I I started to kind of think about how human beings relate between their own immediate experience um, and the large scales within which we are placed when we think about our own backgrounds and and aspirations of the future, etc. So that kind of led to thinking about time, and then the more I paid attention to materials, I realized that. There's actually an immense variety of ways of dealing with time that one can find in Islamic materials. And that is not reflected in the way uh, Islamic history has been told in the modern context since the late 19th century. Uh, So it kind of invited uh, trying to write something that is very broad in in order to try to think about changing the terms on which we engage materials pertaining to Islam and time. Initially, this book was meant to be just a regular book with a series of connected essays. But when the digital possibility became available, it kind of allows allowed performing um, the arguments uh, through the use of digital media. Terrific. I want to start actually by
1: asking you a broad question about the larger argument of the book. The way I read it, um, there seems to be two major strands of thought operating throughout the book. One is this. Uh, idea of uh, looking at Islam as an unbounded object of study, as something that is not bound by its texts or theology or by one particular uh, articulation of Islam, but to look at Islam as this very multifaceted, unpredictable, unbound object of study, and then connected to that is your argument about time, to look at time as something which is out of joint, uh, so to say, which is not linear, which uh, has multiple temporalities that are operative when we look at these multiple dimensions of Islam. So I want to connect these two um, strands of argument to actually ask you a broad question about what, how would you describe for the uninitiated, uh, someone who has not looked at your book yet, the main argument that you're trying to articulate, and I want to connect it to the form of the book. As you mentioned, this is not a conventional book. It is a digital text which has a different experience of reading if you're reading it on your laptop versus on your iPhone. It, uh, uh, you know It's been it a very inter- interesting experience for me also in the last couple of weeks to go through this entire book. So I, was, I wanted to ask you, how would you connect the form of the book with the argument of the book? How does the form reinforce the argument? And what is the argument?
0: Uh, thank you, yeah, I mean, I think what you 're pointing out is the, is the really the crucial issue involved I think so uh in terms of the background for why it looks the way it does um, uh it's it 's a, it's a combination of two things so once I uh, started noticing the questions pertaining to time in Islamic materials, so in order to make sense of them, I started reading very broadly in the philosophy of history, discussions about history and theory that have been happening for the last 200 years or so, complications pertaining to how do we actually make claims about the past, etc. cetera. Um, most of those discussions are almost entirely based on using Western philosophies and materials from European and American history. And there's actually very little of anything else in there. Uh, so, but what I found in, in those materials and the philosophical materials um, was this question of, the instability of time um, as, a, uh, as a as 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 a possible substrate for narrating history. Uh, so, uh, I mean, in a in a kind of a, to encapsulate this, there is a general kind of proverb that is given to aspiring historians that that history has changed over time. The problem is, in the philosophically, what comes up is that well, if time itself is not actually stable, notions of what times are time is um, are completely changing, uh, that we can see changing in time. And also philosophically, it's very hard to actually capture what this is. And there's immense dispute uh, among philosophers about what time is. So therefore, history and time are constantly they're they're both unstable and they're fungible. Uh, And therefore, what comes up in the philosophy of history is that when we start paying attention to materials, historical materials, together with um, conceptual problems relating to time, what we see is a kind of constant uh, dialogue that is happening between uh, ideas on the one side and material realities uh, on the other, and they're inseparable. So this is the perspective that eventually uh, I came to see very much uh, in the Islamic materials that I was working with as well. So, if one comes from that perspective, then one of the al- automatic challenges that comes to is how do we then contain Islam in any way? Right? Uh, in, because if time is unstable <clears throat> and um, material reality, as we know, are contingent and they're changing um, depending on time and space, etc. So, if if the if the mode of ex- interpretation of existence as such is so unstable, then how can something called Islam be posited as a bounded world? Um, So it actually creates this fundamental opposition between a notion of Islam as a tradition, which is maybe articulated from within and which is also articulated in Western scholarship since the 19th century. Uh, It produces uh, this uh, fundamental challenge. So the eventually in the book what I, I end up doing is that i actually ex, um, you know espouse the notion that is coming from of history about the instability of these things but i when i bring that idea to islamic materials i don't want to let go of islam because it is part of the material that is part of uh, it's it's invoked in text it's present in material realities etc so therefore i End up investing in trying to think about how is Islam being projected from within any particular type of material, and then one way to get a handle on the immense and illimitable variety that is happening within um, the way Islam is projected is by focusing on the question of time. Uh, so that, that's the those that's where the the two come together. So in a way, uh, I began with time, but the interest in time and the philosophical issues pertaining to time kind of compel me to make the argument uh, about the unboundedness of Islam or anything else um, uh, for that matter. So initially when I was doing this in a former regular book, part of the challenge there was that to make this argument um, in a a regular book uh, requires um, constraining the materials that can be used uh, to to arg- things that can fit in uh, kind of digestible arguments, and it has to be sequenced together in the form if, of a number of chapters, etc. The form of the the codex, in a way, uh, has a temporality built into it. Which, is, uh, which doesn't sit well with the notion of time that I was working with. Um, so when I was writing in the regular book, I was somewhat frustrated uh, with this limitation. When the digital possibility came up, um, it was kind of uh, essentially providing a, a, a place to go in order to play out the argument, to actually perform the argument. And what the digital provides is the ability to, to connect and disconnect, to make connections and to break connections uh, in multiple forms uh, within a single object, which is the digital book. And so a lot of time I spent uh, in in creating the the interface of the book and how it operates, what possibilities it provides, how it allows the hoping that it allows the reader to come to inhabit the argument. They can make a judgment on the argument after experiencing in this way i mean people might not agree which you know it's it's not it's not a being presented as some kind of um you know absolute truth or something but the the performed aspect of the book um to for my purposes provides the best uh, exemplification of the power of the argument uh, as i perceive it for myself in and i'm able to convey it much better in this form than in uh in, in regular writing. Does that make, uh, this make sense?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So turning to chapter one, uh, uh, this uh, really fascinating sort of essays that uh, center on Isfahan and uh, multiple sites in Isfahan, especially the ancient Friday Mosque. Um, I wanted to focus on one particular theme that came up in uh, multiple sections of this chapter, uh, especially the last few sections, which is this idea of time as deeply political. Uh, uh, I'm reading from one of the sections here uh, called Politics, where you say representations of the past are political constructs by definition, and you show how these monuments and ways of memorializing are deeply political um, acts. And the last section, you made this very interesting comparison between an organization like UNESCO's sense of what is heritage and what counts as properly, uh, you know, uh, as a world heritage site, and how does that contrast with... Uh, I guess, Islamicate notions of uh, heritage and, and and the past. So I was wondering if from this chapter, you could perhaps speak a bit about this particular theme, uh, time as deeply political, and how that comes up in this chapter in its different sections. Uh,
0: thank you. Yeah, I mean, in, uh, th- that was... Um, uh, as, as you pointed out in the, in the specific statement made there, that time is political by definition, uh, because any time one picks up an object or a, a something to observe, such as a building or a text, et cetera, um, automatically one has to, uh, and this, in, in my perspective, one has to think about where did this originate? What is it trying to project? What was it trying to project when it was created? What might it mean today uh, for us to be looking at it if it's an old object? How, how do we create objects um, and how our political situations, our situationality within political worlds actually intersects with the, the production of time and so on. Uh, so I, uh, <clears throat> the, it, it kind of, the, the chapter builds towards uh, that um, from uh, my own experience of walking through a space, which the way it's presented today is as a museum, the, the Great Mosque of Isfahan. Um, and uh, placing myself as a tourist, which is also a political positionality, by, if one goes to Iran in this way, um, it, it it the dissonance created by my sense that this is somehow representing another time. And yet the only reason I'm able to actually say that this is another time is because of my own investments in the time in which I live. Um, so I begin with this uh, kind of phenomenological way of thinking about time and then eventually end um, on UNESCO's time and the and the politics of time in the present in a way the, the the arc of the chapter if one reads it in the the way it's presented in the sequence because it can be read um, different ways as well as the book makes possible um, <clears throat> it is it's kind of questioning all possibilities um, of the representation of time. So in a a way, I'm not, um, partly I'm showing is that there are multiple ways, multiple types of politics that are built into uh, Islamic representations of time, from buildings to texts and um, stories, et cetera, that are brought up. But these are, there's what what we are calling Islamicness of times, uh, actually is constantly changing as well. For, for purposes of analysis, we could separate out, say, UNESCO's time as to, and UNESCO investing in this building in Isfahan and calling it a, uh, the representation of a certain type of past time. But the key issue for me is that the UNESCO's uh, commendation for that actually is built with complete and total acquiescence of the people who actually occupy the space there now. Uh, right. So the, the Muslims... Are the source of information that UNESCO is using in order to, to designate certain buildings as, um, as Islamically significant. Um, so, but the reasons the Muslims are articulating this, or the, the the people in Iran or Isfahan are articulating this, is because of the power of UNESCO um, and its and its uh, political clout in the world. Now, the when we think about it that way, it it creates two interesting issues. One is the inseparability between power regime at any given moment um, and Islam. Islam is as much UNESCO as UNESCO as Islam in this this context. Furthermore, then if we put this in conjunction with the stories that we know about the place of Isfahan from previous centuries, there's actually a almost a radical gap between how the building is understood today by Muslims versus the Muslims who actually constructed it many years ago were preserved in various ways. So it <clears throat> the the political aspect of it is pervasive, but what the politics is is not actually specifically Islamic. It has to do with how power is functioning in any given context within which the connection to Islam and the articulation of Islam Actually, can vary radically, and it's not separable from Mongol power, or the UNESCO's power, or the power of uh, colonialism, etc., and so on. So it's it's the it's kind of power is is permeating through all of this, um, and and it becomes visible to us a little bit easier for, for my purposes by concentrating on time, while at the same time allowing us to see the possibility of infinite variance uh, within uh, how Islam can be made a part of these all these different power structures.
1: Now, From the next uh, chapter, th- there were uh, two terms that really uh, struck me as very important to the conceptual work you were doing, uh, primarily uh, through the example of Java, but elsewhere as well. Uh, one was this idea of space times, uh, and the other was this idea of Islamic history as a web. Uh, And I want to especially read out for listeners here uh, a section from a section in this chapter called Genealogies, in which you write, My suggestion that we should think of Islamic history as a web includes the contention, contention that in contrast with the more limited scope of the timeline model, this metaphor allows correlating between different categories of analytical objects. Reflection and manipulation of time inheres not just in spaces, but also in matters such as genealogies that link human bodies yearly cycles of repetition and forms that endure while their meanings keep changing. So I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit, uh, what do you mean by space-times? I think that would be really useful to to, to get an idea of this uh, concept, which is very fascinating, uh, 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 but uh, I think requires some commentary, and this idea of Islamic history as a web. And how do you connect these two ideas of space-times and Islamic history as a web? through these examples in uh, chapter uh, two, I guess. Uh,
0: thank you. Yeah, the, the space-time part is, uh, I think part of the critical issue in terms of thinking about time is that space and time are actually inseparable uh, entities. So in a way, one could say, uh, I'm privileging time as the analytical focus in this book, One but, but critical geography, for example, does that something very similar if, we, if one ends up privileging space. And so the issue there is that if any kind of evidence is provided about time, that, for example, at the moment, you and I are talking through a computer system uh, at the moment. So there's a we are in a we're sharing a time, but that time. Uh, is fundamentally connected to the space within which I'm standing, this the space where you are, the the collapse of space that is happening through the internet, et cetera. So questions of space are inseparable from any kind of description of time and vice versa. So when we think of space, let's say, uh, as I, in the book, I talk about Java. <clears throat> uh, so the if we say the city, uh, Uh, of kudus in java now the city of kudus in java is not actually a a stable entity because it's been changing uh, and it changes you know minute by minute by minute Um, so the the notion of space has to provide for its changeability with respect to uh, with respect to time because of the, the the basic fact of inexorable change so any kind of Uh, positing of pure space that is not connected to time has to be an idealization uh, because of deterioration development and so on and so forth so so in 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 critical thought with respect to time and space what we find is that that talking of those things together uh, makes much more sense than to separate uh, them out or at least it provides for a, a richer way to 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 think about it now for my purposes uh it's especially interesting to bring this uh space-time uh kind of combination to thinking about uh islamic materials because it allows us to take any kind of evidence um, and kind of elaborate it out unpack it uh, with respect to these two dimensions the both spatial and tempor- temporal at the same time it it, it allow it it helps because it it kind of uh, res- allows us to resist reification of space or of time at the same time because they they kind of modulate uh, together then they they affect each other so uh, in, in in a way the the abstraction of this uh, is one thing but what is most useful for my purposes is that if one keeps in mind constantly the space and time have to be interconnected then what one does with any material, um, it, it becomes like a key for me. So if I think of Kudus at the moment in which it was uh, created, uh, <clears> that the, the city was created in the 15th century, there's a particular uh, kind of articulation of space and time that is happening. Some people who are present there are creating a space which they're calling um, after the name of Jerusalem. Uh, so um, and then As they're doing it, they're recalling other times. They're referring to another space, the city of Jerusalem in the Middle East. Um, But in the articulation, in the text that we find from the place, there's also invocation of um, the the prophet and his genealogy and all of these things. So there are multiple notions of time and space that are part of the time and space that is created at the moment. And then when we take uh, any point in later history of the same place, we find other spaces and times uh, that are all building on or referring to or using indexically other times and spaces to create this um, this kind of mesh of times and spaces which are all relating to a place that we can go to today, but this perspective allows us to see the world as being constantly um, in motion and the with the focusing on a place like kudus. Um, it kind of brings you to the question of how Islam is actually a part of all this uh, this mesh that we can we can delineate uh, for analytical purposes uh, in particular ways. Now, the, the web idea <coughs> uh, kind of is a in a, in a way is an abstraction of what I'm calling this mesh of space time. Um, so, and, and there uh, it's moving away from thinking about the world what the world is to the question of how do we represent the world that we claim, make claims about. And there then the web is actually helpful if one thinks about that um, the, if we think of Islamic history um, as not being placed on a um, kind of unstable timescale from the time of the prophet to now, but actually, and if we take any evidence any type of evidence that has some kind of an islamic signature in it it could be a text it could be a genealogy it could be a building it could be an idea it could be a story and we start to unpack it using these space-time notions what exactly is happening within this uh, object this analytical object that we have chosen Uh, and from that uh, started to extract various times and spaces um, uh, that, that are space times that are kind of interacting within it what we then find is <clears throat> that um, within this analytical object that we have chosen there are connections to all kinds of other space times that are happening so uh, in this case the the city of Kudus in in Java being directly connected connected to uh, Jerusalem in uh, in in Palestine now what I'm trying to suggest is the is that in this perspective, if we keep elaborating on all these nodes and this, which which is what I'm calling these analytical points that we're focusing on, um, we keep we can keep expanding it and kind of enriching it. What ends up what we end up with in the end is to look uh, is for the Islamic past to look like this uh, immensely entangled web in which lines are going from all different different we- points of the web uh, to another. Now, since the analytical objects can be many different types of things, such as idea, story, et cetera, it allows us to kind of freeze us to focus on deeply on any type of evidence.
1: Great, so just to let listeners know, we just had a technological problem here uh, as we were recording. Uh, uh, So Shizal, why don't you continue the thread on which we were at before we got disrupted?
0: Uh, sure. So so in, in a way, uh, the, the web idea is the uh, to, say, to say that we should conceive of uh, the history of Islam or Islamic history um, as a history of um, nodes um, that are conglomerations of space times uh, rather than a timeline within that presumes that there is something called Islam that is moving through history from a certain time period, a so, certain year to another instead of that model is asking for us to concentrate on any kind of evidence within which we have a signature of Islam, uh, which could be any type of material, uh, an idea or a physical thing, et cetera. And then think about how space time issues are involved there. And from there, create the connections to other types of evidence. So it's kind of inverting how we can rather than presuming that Islam is a history um, that can be lined. Put into a line, we actually treat um, Islam as an object that is constantly emerging uh, from all the evidence that we that we look at uh, through this notion of space time. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, chapters three and four uh, make it very evident that, uh, d- despite the digital form of the book, there is some uh, heavy textual philological work that you've also done, and your really fascinating readings of these incredible texts uh, in Arabic, Persian, Urdu, and other languages. Um, And uh, they really are uh, uh, some tremendous repositories of uh, reflections about time. And uh, in chapter 3, I mean, the two key threads that I saw operating, one was this idea of the varieties of time in Islamic thought, the varieties of operations of time uh, in in Islamic thought. uh, and this idea of the continuities and disjunctures between pre-modern and modern notions of time um, that you show throughout the book, but especially, I think, in chapters 3 and 4. So for my next question, Shadad, I would actually want to do an experiment with you to connect two sections of chapter 3 together. One, this really fascinating section on your reading of khurshid e Numa by Sayyid Elahi Angrezabadi, and then in a, another section you look at Mas'udi's uh, kitabatan b Uh, And one, of course, from the modern period, the first one, second from the pre-modern period. I was wondering if you could put these two texts and these two authors into conversation um, and how that might reflect these two underlying arguments that you make in this chapter about the varieties of Islamic time and these continuities and disjunctions between pre-modern and modern notions of time as are visible uh, in these kinds of texts.
0: Um, thank you. I, I really appreciate your comment on the philological and deep t- historical work that, you know, that kind of work takes an immense amount of time. And one of the challenges of writing this book was to how to convey that story without all the footnoting, et cetera, but as the story itself so that it's, it's more easily accessible. The threshold of, threshold of accessibility is uh, to a larger public than just people who might specialize in in those things. So. Um, uh going with your uh, what you were suggesting in terms of um, creating a comparison in a way uh, this is part of the conceit that if one um, agrees with this idea that we look at time as a construct and a time as a product that is put uh, out by an author or some other functionary uh, at any given moment then basically all things should be comparable across um uh, now uh what I'm uh, kind of, so in a way, one f- first step in that is to actually unpack any particular given evidence that is there. So, <clears throat> so working with the Angreza Zabadi text, Um so there the most fascinating thing for me is that uh, it's a text that is in the form of a type of. Persian cosmological chronological text that is available for three four centuries by the time this is being written. Um, however, in this particular text, all f- many different forms of European knowledges, what we might consider modern knowledges uh, in India, in the, by the mid nineteenth century, are actually being absorbed um, into this older form. So in a way, part of my interest in that text and other texts like that is to show that the forms um, can absorb new types of knowledges as easily in the modern period as might as we might uh, see most of the traffic going the other way around, that old knowledges are actually being put uh, into new forms, um, as we as I try to show in a different section where there's a discussion of an Urdu text. <laughs> so there are um, the, kind of unpacking of the text reveals a certain view of the world in which history works uh, in a certain way. Uh, They're privileging of certain places, especially India. Um, There are other types of ways in which uh, one can sort of see the author bringing himself into it. Um, So there are are modes of expression, uh, both with respect to authorship and also with respect to kind of figuration of time um, that are specific uh, to this. And, And within that, Islam actually works as a, this constant presence that is being traced um, across um, large parts of the world and and uh, from the time of the prophet to when he's writing. Now Masoudi, uh, at some level, my claim is actually very, very similar uh, in the sense that we also see him, he's uh, writing only three centuries um, uh, after the, the, the birth of the prophet. So the time period there is <clears throat> Uh, the actual uh, extension of time is uh, is less. But he, in his work, um, too, what we find is a similar kind of uh, manufacture uh, of time. Uh, uh, but that relates to the world from within which he's writing his own personal identity, the possibility uh, of his personal allegiances between different competing groups of Muslims uh, who were around at the time. Um, and... In that text, we have a similar thing as in the case of Angrez there's an encapsulation of certain times, especially I focus very much on his description of the time of the prophet and the turning of quantitative time uh, measured by years into actually qualitative times where he gives, um, uses names for different years in which he's following uh, predecessors uh, who who are chronicles of that period. Um, So, in, in a way, uh, part of the reason I think putting those together uh, is very helpful is that the uh, looking at a certain way of thinking about Islamic history, which I think is fairly common in modern scholarship, somehow Masudi is more authoritative for thinking about the early Islamic period because it's, it's closer to the time of the prophet, uh, where someone writing in the 19th century is supposed to be um, uh, less uh, uh kind of less certain uh, we we can uh, invest less in what is the uh, the claim about what happened in, in those early time periods but what but by thinking that they're both manufacturing time we can become sensitized to how masudi is creating a very particular picture uh, of the early period and how the most interesting things that i found in, in masudi was that Everything that he presents about the life of the prophet is shown to be have been contention for all the period between that actual event to the time when he's writing. He's actually much much more interested in showing the dispute about that early time rather than putting into any kind of uh, um, you know kind of a standardized form. So so the past then in in Masudi comes across as um, being formed. Um, and so, but later when someone like Masoodi is used often, it's presumed that what he's saying is somehow uh, standard because of the proximity to the early time period, et cetera. Now, the other way around, if we take uh, what Masoodi is doing to the early period and then think about what angrezabadi is doing, something similar happens that what in angrezabadi what are kind of standard descriptions um, of certain uh, places or certain times. Uh, when we start to see about his own positionality with respect to those uh, claims about descriptive claims, et cetera, similarly, the narrative becomes alive um, in a certain way because it is also being produced in competition with other types of narratives um, that are available. So for me, it's to the putting these things into into juxtaposition kind of destabilizes both of them while simultaneously making them both more valuable sources than we might presume to, them to be based upon a uh, a kind of standardized notion of what the past is.
1: Now, with the next chapter, I want to, I mean, all the sections of the next chapter were, were extremely fascinating, especially the uh, section on Fatima Balneesia I found really, really fascinating as well. Uh, but I want to focus on uh, one specific section of um, this chapter. Uh, uh, And the reason for that is that early on in your book, you uh, make a claim that I think should not be missed by the reader, should not be forgotten, which is this idea that the Islamic uh, is not limited to Muslims, uh, but in fact, uh, can include, uh, you know, uh, non-Muslim texts, articulations of authority, etc. And uh, I want to focus on the section on the tabakat uh, that really makes that point in really fascinating ways. And the focus of this uh, section is on the Tabakat Mahmood Shahi uh, that was uh, uh, done by this chronicler named Abdul Karim uh, Nimdihi. Um, So I would let you maybe, this is a very complicated text and a really fascinating one as well. It's quite a mind-blowing text, in fact. Uh, So I I would want you to maybe describe it uh, to our listeners, uh, who this person was and what does this text do? And how then do you uh, put it in juxtaposition with this, another Sanskrit text? about a quote-unquote Muslim ruler. Um, And how does that juxtaposition perhaps connect to your argument early on in the book that the Islamic is not limited to Muslims?
0: uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, I mean that uh, the, that juxtaposition was precisely, as you're saying, about um, kind of um, substan- trying to substantiate this uh, this claim about Islam being a, a product uh, of Muslims and non-Muslims alike. I think uh, in many other places in the book, uh, this is done much more using. Uh, modern Western sources, uh, but in in that case it's, in, it's a Sanskrit source as well. Um, so the the text, as you were saying, is is actually absolutely fascinating. When the the first time I came across it, I could barely believe that this thing existed, um, and it, it is a it's a it's a full blown, very complex figuration of time into space. So it begins by telling us that actually he knows that there are many different ways of thinking about time there are indian ones there's jewish one the christians one they're different muslim one he's fully aware that different ways of time understanding time exist. and then he's he asks the reader to imagine time as a nine story building uh, beginning with uh, and that those nine stories are the nine centuries that separate the prophet from himself uh writing at the in gujarat in the um in the, in, in the early 16th century. <clears throat> and he's working for a, a ruler who has grand universal um, ambitions, uh, who also constructs at the same time a grand city in Gujarat, uh, which is meant to be like a victorious city pattern on Baghdad or Rome or something like this. Uh, so the text is actually very directly connected to the ambitions of their king. Now, what he then says, uh, he systemizes history in this kind of extremely elaborate way, uh, which is which kind of makes sense to us, but it's also very counterintuitive. And he says that uh, there are these nine uh, uh, nine stories of this building, each story separated by hundred steps, which are the years, and then within each year, I'm going to talk about nine categories of people. Um, actually I forget nine or 10, uh, beginning with the, with the kings and then going down all the way to the poets and, and so on. Uh, and there's also a section on incidentals and things like this. So it is this intense systemization um, of, of the past. Now, what I found most interesting in this case was that this actually is in a way a biography of Islam that he's doing. So he is taking uh, the birth of Islam uh, in, at the time of the prophet and then up to now um, and he's mashing together, taking details of humans' lives to produce this biography uh, of Islam. One of the things that it does is it is completely um, kind of mashes up time and space. So if we say the year 600 that he is describing, and the first category on the year is going to be kings. So he's going to discuss the kings that are in Gujarat, in Bengal, in Delhi, in Spain in Iran, in Central Asia, in a single category. Uh, and then he's going to move on to viziers doing the same kinds of things. So it's, it's, it's actually kind of deconstructing ordinary notions of uh, lifetimes and spaces within people live in order to produce this biography uh, of, of Islam as an entity that is flowing. Now, for him, the critical issue, and this has to do with his sponsor, is that time has arrived at a fullness with the coming of the king for whom he's writing. And the book is dedicated to him. So, in a way, this king is the representation his lifetime uh, and the la- time space in which he's living, Gujarat, in this moment, uh, somehow encapsulates all of this uh, building because he's standing at the, the top of this building. So, so in a way, Islam becomes synonymous with the king, which is uh, done in the preface, but also through the construction that he does, uh, we we get the sense. So it's a very unusual text in in this way. And it it is actually changing the meaning of uh, this notion of levels of generations, the tabakat model that he's inherited from much previous work to put into a very different use uh, for his political patron. Now, uh, so When we look at this, we have a sense of this naturalization of the biography of time. But then it becomes really fascinating that the same king uh, who sponsors this text also is the recipient of a work in Sanskrit uh, written with the same kind of ambition. Now, in this work, which is organized differently, is based upon Sanskrit patterns of how chronicles are written or addressed to kings, uh, the king actually becomes completely synonymous with the uh, with the pantheon, the Sanskritic Brahmanical pantheon. He's, he's uh, he becomes uh, Krishna. Uh, he so he becomes uh, embodied as a as a kind as a as a Brahmanical god, <clears throat> uh, which is a kind of usage that is quite common in Sanskrit for people whom we understand to be Romanical or Hindu kings um, and other aspects of the Hindu pantheon, uh, other gods and goddesses are made to fit uh, his, um, uh, the description of this king as well. So what is most fascinating for me is that um, if we take the only the Tabaka text by, by itself, we could say, okay, well, here's the standardized time. But given the fact that the same person and the same sponsor can also get a text that is entirely done to substantiate um, a brahmanical vision of cosmology and supersession uh, above all others. It tells us that all of these pr- products, all of these productions uh, in which uh, chronicles are produced, especially when they're addressed to rulers, etc., these are highly conditioned and carefully curated um, rhetorical products that are responding to the claims and aims of both the writers and the sponsors. Um, And so we shouldn't take any of these things on face value as representing reality directly. They are all uh, highly manufactured uh, ways of thinking about time. So when we read Tabakrat work, um, even one that might be more standardized than this one, we should pay attention to how does the notion of tabaka or a stage or a story actually is operating. Uh, what is the ideological basis for the construction of it, and how is the author taking a prototype or a, a paradigm that is available and actually conditioning it to the immediate circumstances in which it is uh, in which it is being used. Now this. Uh, takes us away from Islam as a historical reality out in the world to Islam is actually a product um, that is created through narration. Uh, And that narration can be done by Muslims and non-Muslims alike. Um, In this case, we have a a Muslim king who's being uh, portrayed in this um, particular way. As we see it here in the 19th century, we have many, many cases of Hindus who are writing Islamic history in the same way, because they're adopting this narrative mode. And modern Western scholarship uh, in which Muslims write about Islam are doing something very, very similar. So because of this variety that we can actually substantiate based upon the different types of narratives that are available to us, um, we have to historically, when we think about Islam, we have to think outside um, of a confessional approach um, to history Uh, To Islamic history as being somehow a product of or something owned by Muslims Mm alone. Now,
1: for the next chapter, also, I want to focus on one specific section and one specific um, uh, uh, object of your analysis. And one thing that really the next uh, chapter makes uh, very abundantly clear is the focus of this book on uh, materiality and uh, vision as uh, one of the senses that are really activated for the reader uh, very frequently in this book. Uh, And I think the next uh, chapter, and especially the section I want to focus on, really brings those two things together, the the importance of materiality as seen through Sufi shrines or the skyline of Istanbul, and other uh, uh, themes that you focus on in different sections. But the section I want to focus on is this fascinating section on uh, Lara Baladi's uh, installation uh, called The Grave of Time. Uh, I would let you describe what this uh, installation is. Um, But I was really struck by this one uh, sentence of yours where you uh, write that I would compare the grave of time uh, to a narrative construct that would do through words what a shrine accomplishes in physical form. Could you explain that uh, that argument uh, while also introducing our listeners a bit
0: to what is the grave of time? Uh, Thank you, yeah, actually, so that work, um, that artwork called The Grave of Time was actually very influential in terms of how I came to even uh, think about time and to especially to create the digital book and therefore um, something that is uh, part of the same project from which the Grave of Time comes is the the cover of the book as well and then the artwork is discussed um, uh, in a section. So the artwork comes uh, from trying to uh, from a certain circumstance that that, uh, Baladi describes in in an article where she was tending to her uh, father, who was ill in Cairo. And um, as she was with him, uh, what she did was people would come and have coffee. and to come to visit him because of his illness. Um, and she asked everyone who came to, after they drank the coffee, to turn the cup upside down um, as is customary and then uh, turn it back up. And usually this is used for telling fortunes or t- telling the future. And and what she did was to take photographs of all these thousands of uh, spoiled cups essentially, um, and then had them imprinted on on um, porcelain medallions which were then placed inside uh, a constructed room uh, made of concrete walls um, in particularized patterns together with a number of various other types of decorations picked from lace and so on Uh, so it's a very elaborate work the the key issue there is this picture of the uh, of the coffee cups and the and the way the the interface of the book is designed, it's it's essentially leaning on um, the articulation of these coffee cups in in Baladi's work. Now, so for me, the the crucial issue was how this uh, cup uh, and the image of the cup is is captures the past, the the present or the positionality of anyone at any given moment and the future uh, in the sense that the reason those people are coming uh, and leaving this trace in in the coffee cup is because of their prior relationship to the family uh, to whom to whom they're visiting. So there, there's a there's a, an imagined past that is feeding into this object. The drinking of the coffee itself, which we can only tell from its remains, um, uh, in the in the in the dregs left in the cup, uh, is is this kind of presence that happens. Uh, when the people are there and they're drinking the coffee, and then this notion of telling the future um, by looking at the dregs um, is the aspect of aspiration and imagination into the into the future. So the so this coffee cup and its arrangement in various ways inside the artwork <clears throat> works for me as a as a as a as a kind of um, metonym for thinking about the collapse of these different elements of time into a single object. Now, uh, what she does with this is to take these cups and then construct something else from it, which is this uh, room called the grave of time. So for me, uh, the physical representation of this room of time made of these images of coffee cups is similar to a Chronicle, in the sense that the chronicle is made of events uh, narrated by the chronicler or any kind of narration of history. And then in those events, there are past that are feeding into the representation of something that occurred, and they're always conditioned by uh, the anticipation of the possible reader, as well as the anticipation um, of uh, the future that will come after the narrative is told because when the narrator is writing or telling us something um, the narrator is already aware of what will come thereafter so therefore any narration of a present is actually conditioned uh, by the presumed knowledge of the future by uh, by the narrator as well so if we take a story within a narrative it combines together uh, the past the event and the future together uh, and the the putting together of all of these t- events together into a large narrative such as a, as a chronicle um is this kind of linking of um of of things equivalent to these these uh, coffee cups as we see as I see in the in Baladi's work so so this is why um for me uh, it uh, this work as well as some of the other Conceptual artworks that are discussed in the book or shown in the book work that they help me think through how to conceptualize um, the problems relating to the past or problems or the possibilities relating to the past. Um, it's much harder for me to just, uh, you know, without this kind of conceptualization or visualization, just to pick up a narrative and see it constructed. To this, um, these coffee cups types of situation, um, uh, it's difficult because narr- uh, a reading of a narrative happens in time itself, uh, right? Because one goes from beginning to end. Now, this the image that comes from looking at an artwork, it registers immediately. So therefore, the visual, in a way, provides a different types of access for th- for thinking conceptually about. Um, any matter but i kind of operationalized that possibility of a different uh, way of constructing knowledge that comes from visual materials and then correlated to uh, trying to think of new ways or different ways of um, seeing how one might read a narrative as well now the next
1: uh, chapter uh, the focus is on um... Uh, representations of time in uh, literature, especially uh, modern fiction, though not limited to fiction. Um, and rather than focus on one particular section of this of this chapter that talked about a really wide array of sources from the Middle East, ambiguous adventures, and other very interesting texts, um, I actually wanted to uh, focus on one particular argument that you made uh, when you actually talk about pre-modern epics, And I found it really fascinating and really worthy for discussion, Um, and I think our listeners will benefit from your commentary on this argument. Where you write, and I'm quoting you here, that in chronological order, influence flows from the epics to modern novels, from the past to the present. However, my analytical stance is going to work in reverse. I believe our easier access to historical projections in modern novels provides ways to incorporate the contents of epics into the narratives we construct of pre-modern times. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this, and this connects to this larger theme of the book also about the uh, continuities and disjunctures between the pre-modern and the modern periods in terms of thinking about time. Uh, And again, this chapter is making a very important argument about really treating fiction and literature as a very important part of the archive of uh, Islam. Uh, But could you speak about this particular argument, this working in reverse of the chronological order, and how that uh, can allow us to look at the relationship between modern fiction and literature in multiple sites uh, and pre-modern epics, or the relationship between them?
0: Uh, sure. So, so, so that uh, that really is one of the critical kind of thoughts that uh, for, for my own purposes that I, when I kind of uh, thought through this was very important for me to think about the topic as a whole. Um, and so it, it actually, uh, one of the issues with uh, looking at any kind of a narration of time um, is that how we understand what the narrative is doing is uh, heavily dependent on what we know about the contextual, cultural, social, intellectual, Uh, political world within which that uh, narrative was produced. Um, Now, this is easier or more easily done uh, with um, modern narrations uh, just because we have a lot more material and we have a lot more different types of material. So, for example, if we look at a uh, a historical book published in 1850, uh, in the the moment when print has become uh, available, there's a lot more that we know from other sources about the 1850s through which we can uh, contextualize this material. If we look at something in the year 1000, um, we have a much less of an intuitive access to what the world might have looked like in the year 1000. Now, we still, what we do is still to try to contextualize it, we find other kinds of information, but both the extent of the information and the type of information is very different between um, you know, 1850 versus the year 1000. Now, uh, <clears throat> so that's the, the main background. Now, so within that, one of the crucial issues with respect to modern historical fiction is that it, com- it becomes a genre in the 19th century in Europe at the exact same time uh, when modern history is being created, uh, modern academic history is being created. So people have pointed out that, <clears throat> um, so in a way, the historical fiction um, in, in the work of um, Scott and others in English, but and they've taken up uh, in all kinds of other European languages and eventually by the late 19th century uh, in many, Islamic languages, Arabic, Urdu, Persian, etc. <clears throat> so, one of the interesting things is that the, there's a kind of interrelationship between um, historical fiction and history as uh, understood as the truth about the past and asserted as the truth about the past in the 19th century. <clears throat> now, historical fiction relies on the authority uh, of this. Uh, what is considered to be the the straightforward truth. Um, And and so things that are taken up, what differentiate historical fiction from other types of fiction, is there's some kind of a buried claim there about things that actually happened. Now, the historical fiction writer uh, is aware that what they're doing is they're creating um, uh, an imagined world, but the bases of that imagined world are kind of claimed to be historically, valid in some way through the reliance on academic history. Similarly, academic history is uh, is asking for the production of pa- uh, facts or how things really were, but then the actual narration uh, of what the past was, what we see is a lot of flourish and the imaginary aspect, the historian's imagination is really critical to telling any kind of, a, of a narrative about the past. So we see also a lot of traffic is going from historical fiction to history writing. Now, um, now this we uh, have evidence for uh, for European languages as well as other languages as well from the nineteenth century. So what I'm arguing is that we take this insight that what is fictional or what we call fictional actually is deeply connected to uh, what is non-fictional, mm-hmm. and when we transfer it to the treatment of epic literature. Uh, in, in pre-modern times in Arabic or other languages I, I treat in Arabic um, epics specifically here uh, and we see the chronicles as being intimately connected to the production of epic literature uh, and we, what we try to do is to then see one is based upon dating let's say uh, in terms of specific chronology and things like this epics that don't have dates but they have a lot more emotional uh, exploration and a lot more emotional expansion um, of of narratives. So if we see them uh, when they're when they're talking about the same topic uh, as somehow being interconnected, now we can kind of interpolate between the two to produce richer pictures um, of the world from within uh, which both types of uh, texts are coming. Um, so I I, I uh, the the Arabic epic that I use. Uh, to just give you one small example uh, in which the, the Shi'i imam Jafar al-Sadiq shows up. Um, now, we have historical narratives as well that we're also talking about uh, al-Sadiq. Uh, <clears throat> but the type, the way al-Sadiq is represented in, in, the, uh, in the epics is very different than the way he occurs in, in chronicles or other types of religious literatures. Now, ultimately, what I want to suggest is that the, 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 our better understanding and more detailed knowledge of the modern situation should help us to then make better and more extensive historical use of um, epics um, from, the, from the past, rather than relegating them to the status of folklore or uh, purely imaginary uh, literature, which is how they have often been treated, or they're just cited as well, here's this alternative version. There's, there's ways in which we can see them interlaced together with the chronicles. And if we do that, it helps to uh, create uh, more elaborate pictures, more complex pictures of those worlds, but also helps us become better readers of both the chronicles um, and the epics.
1: So as a final uh, question, Shazad, I actually want to take a step back, and rather than asking about any specific chapter or section, um, I want to ask about a larger question that I think will... Uh, arise in the minds of readers who go through this book Um, and I'll ask the sort of superficial or basic question first and then ask and and, and explain more the sort of reasoning behind that question uh, in a a moment which is the selection of uh, the themes and the actors and the texts and the artifacts and the material objects that make up this book. I'm really uh, curious as an author how did you go about that selection process? Of course much of this is also contingent on things that appear in front of you Uh, And they become part of your book. But how how did you manage this plethora, this really dizzying variety of actors, texts, objects, places, etc.? And my sort of reasoning in asking this question is that on the one hand, this book is trying to make an argument about, I guess, the incoherence of time, this uh, kind of idea of time, which is multiple, which is not coherent in, in any one particular register. Um, and how that argument sits in some tension into the premium which is paid in academic scholarship in terms of framing coherent and structured arguments <laughs> in terms of how a text performs itself or unfolds so uh, how did you uh, negotiate that tension of you know presenting a very convincing argument and it is a very convincing and powerful argument about the multiplicity of time um, but to do that in a way that also remains a bit uh, cracked that 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 keeps the the kind of logic of uh, multiplicity in place in terms of how things are presented here. So, kind of asking you a two-part question about the selection and how the selection connected to this tension between presenting a coherent argument, but yet for it to not be too structured uh, because that would set in tension with the argument itself. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you're putting a uh, kind of the finger on the 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 why it took so long to write this book, and this was the very complex situation that I, I, uh, I, I, I felt very much that I was uh, facing, how to carry those two things together. So on the selection part of it, um, there's basically infinite types of evidence that could be used. So in a way, I had to first develop what I was going to actually talk about, um, uh, how the chapter, what the chapter titles might be, and then within them, uh, Find things that that uh, kind of create interesting juxtaposition to to each other, and then go and do deep research on them in order to be able to say something uh, significant uh, about them. Partly it's determined by whatever I happen to know or I I come across. Partly it required actually going into areas that I didn't know much about in order to uh, with the with the sense that certain type of juxtaposition um, would be helpful. And there there are. Uh, ten other sections that did not make it into the book that I also developed, but then it, it was getting too long. So there is a kind of infinitude to the how much it could be expanded. And so, so in a way, the there is a uh, it, it, it's it's not a making a claim about any kind of uh, comprehensiveness with respect to what things should be discussed. And I kind of these are um, invitations to go in certain directions. And then with the idea that people might go into very different directions, even with the same materials or with with other types of materials. Uh, Now, uh, on the side of the, um, the, the the question of the openness on the one side of uh, what the argument is saying, and yet the the book is actually an enclosure, like all uh, objects of this type would be, I think that what helped me to think about it was that to make a differentiation between the, uh, the world that I'm claiming to represent, which I'm saying is completely open, the representation that I am using to show its openness is closed, or it's, it's kind of contained, it has to be contained uh, because of practical reasons. Um, so in that way, uh, the materials, uh, because I, I do have a total commitment to attention to very, very specific evidence, And so I selected the evidence that made the most sense to me. Um, And then in the framing of the chapters, in the framing of the book as well, is to constantly to exhort to the reader not to confuse the representation uh, that I am providing with the world that it is trying to represent. The world is infinite and it's uh, fungible and changing and changeable through interpretation. Um, How the representation of it is constructed on my part or constructed, might be constructed on anyone else's part is going to be limited. Um, Now, in a way, this is, I'm kind of going together with what I find in the historical narratives as well. A narrative that is saying this representing this many years of this part of the world is contained uh, because of the limitation within which it has to be articulated within that uh, the narrative can be talking about all kinds of infinitudes and, and kind of loose ends and things trailing into uh, things that cannot be understood um, and so on. So it's, it's a, but for, for my purposes, for the purposes of writing this, what helped was to make this distinction uh, between the 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 claim about the the context being represented versus the object itself that I am creating, which is going to have very specific boundaries.
1: So as we're coming to the end of our uh, time here, Shahzad, could you share a bit with our listeners what's the next uh, project you're thinking about these days?
0: Sure, uh, I'm, I'm working on, in a way this uh, kind of came up, the description of this work by Angreza Vadi that was published and produced in India in 1850s, uh, which has this mixture of European and non-European lang- uh, knowledges. So I'm kind of expanding from that, looking at the period from 1780 to 1850, the, the period of the rule of the East India Company in India, uh, in, in parts of India, and looking at all the materials that are produced there, uh, not just in English, but the things produced in other languages, such as um, uh, Persian, Urdu, Hindi, Bengali, uh, etc., and trying to make the argument that when we look at this material, uh, we see a different picture of the early colonial period, and hence of colonialism, than uh, what what we are most used to. Uh, So kind of a watchword for this would be something like to say that uh, knowledge is not territory. The fact that the East India Company controlled territory in India did not mean that they actually controlled knowledge. And if we go with that, what other things come up in this vast amounts of materials that were produced in this in this time and space?
1: Terrific. Uh, a New Vision for Islamic Pasts and Futures, a digital book by Professor Shazad Bashir, published by MIT Press in 2022. Uh, thank you so much, Shazad, for this uh, I- incredibly ambitious uh, and interesting book and for sharing your thoughts on it uh, at the New Books Network. I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from uh, your illuminating comments on this book. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much indeed for inviting me.